Is Bible prophecy true? Do the prophecies of your Bible accurately predict the major world events of our time? One-third of the Bible is prophecy, and Jesus Christ was the greatest prophet of all time. He gave specific, detailed, step-by-step outlines of major events which would lead toward His return to this earth, toward the divine intervention of Almighty God in human affairs. He spoke of a time called the Great Tribulation, The interruption of the Great Tribulation to save humankind from extinction is by the heavenly signs that are depicted in the seventh chapter, the latter part of the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. This is followed by the day of the Lord, the seven last plagues, and finally the second coming of Jesus Christ. One of the most intriguing of all of the prophecies in the Bible, the longest prophecy in the Bible, the most detailed prophecy in the Bible, is Daniel the 11th chapter. There is a very great deal of historical information from Rawlinson's Five Great Empires, from Rawlinson, the famous historian of Great Britain, and also from some many other history books, as well as the various commentaries, including the critical and experimental commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and others on all the verses of Daniel, the 11th chapter. A tremendous amount of history is available there, but the ones that we're concerned with for this Bible study tape commence in verse 40, just the five verses from verse 40 to verse 45, dealing with the king of the north and the king of the south. Let's read the prophecy first, and then we'll come back and go through it point by point. Verse 40, Daniel 11, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, and with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow, and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy, and to utterly make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. That's Daniel eleven forty to 45 Now, to go back and look at this verse by verse and word by word, it is obvious that it comes at the conclusion of a very lengthy prophecy, the longest in all of the Bible, that was actually dictated in first-person language from an archangel, believe it or not, to Daniel. It also concludes with a statement that he shall come to his end and none shall help him, but goes right on to chapter 12. And remember that men have added the chapters and the verses. They are not there in the original. So the story flow continues right on to chapter 12, which says this in its first two verses. And at that time, still speaking now, the time of the end, shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. Michael is the great archangel who, God's word says, is the one who stands for the people of Israel, like Israel's protector, or the great archangel that Almighty God has sent on many missions, and will yet do so in the future, that has to do with the saving of Israel alive, the saving of tens of millions of human beings in the many, many different tribes of Israel that are called mine elect in the book of Isaiah. And for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened, said Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 21, and 22. And that is talking about physical Israel, not the church. So Michael is called the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And the prophecy goes on in Daniel 12 and verse 1, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Now, this time that is the greatest time without parallel, never eclipsed by any other time in the history of all of humankind, a time of war, a time of the destruction of human life on a scale that has never been known from the beginning of the world of that time. 
is exactly the same time spoken of by Jesus Christ when he described the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21, and 22. He said, after talking about wars and rumors of wars, great droughts, famines, pestilence, he talked about great massive loss of life and religious persecution along with it. He finally said, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever indeed shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. And of course, Moffat adds, alive, because it's talking not about spiritual salvation, but about physically saving human flesh alive from extinction or extermination. And remember, there are several separate methods by which that can be accomplished. So now let's go back and review. It says in verse 40 of Daniel 11 that this king of the north is going to enter into Palestine, invade the whole region. Many countries are going to be occupied, and he will do so in response to something called a pushing, a shoving match, some kind of a provocation on the part of the king of the south. And it says to conclude that prophecy that at that time Michael shall stand up and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there was a nation even at that time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And verse 2 of Daniel 12 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the resurrection. And the resurrection of the dead does not take place until the precise moment of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. It says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump is when the dead shall be raised, and we which are alive and remain shall be changed, and shall be caught up together with them to meet the returning, conquering Christ in the air. And that is a part of this earth's atmosphere. And you can read that in 1 Thessalonians 4:17 and to stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, as it says in Zechariah 14.4. Jesus said there were two major things which would precipitate all of this activity in the Middle East. And these prophecies are found in Matthew 24, verse 15, and also in Luke 21 and verse 20, where he says, When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And in Luke 21, 20, he says, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled." saying then that these are the days when finally all of biblical prophecy will come together and that all of the written prophecies will culminate in the fulfillment of this great time of the tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the day of the Lord, and finally to be concluded by the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. We are now looking at events beginning to shape up in Europe, in the Middle East, and all over the world that are leading toward the fulfillment of the very prophecies that I have opened before me in the Word of God, the Bible, here on the radio studio desk. This prophecy of Daniel, the 11th chapter, and the 40th verse leading on into the 12th chapter that describes the second coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And we are given definitive information. Jesus Christ tells us there are two specific things for which we should watch. One is called the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it ought not. What is the abomination of desolation? Who sets it up? Approximately when? What does it mean? And when Jesus says, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, and we are reading a prophecy we will come back to and go through verse by verse in just a moment. In Daniel 11:40-45, that at the time of the end, the king of the north is going to enter into the glorious land and stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And then we are told by Jesus Christ, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, and we ask the question, why? Why would a major military force, vast armies, invade into the Middle East, into Palestine, 
into Jerusalem, the modern nation of Israel. Whose armies? Well, these are not Arab armies. These are the armies of the king of the north. Where do they come from? From the north, from the north of Palestine. Not from the east, not from Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia, not from the south, not from Egypt or Libya or Syria, or I should say Libya or any of the other nations in northern Africa, but Syria is certainly one of the antagonists of Israel and could unite with other Arab states when Israel is attacked, which may happen within a very few years. So what is the abomination of desolation? Let me give you, though, the article from John Kiddo's Encyclopedia of Biblical Literature. Here's what he says. In Daniel, the abomination of desolation literally means the abomination of the desolator, which without doubt means the idol or idolatrous apparatus which the desolator of Jerusalem should establish in the holy place. This appears to have been a prediction of the pollution of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, who caused an idolatrous altar to be built on the altar of burnt offerings, whereupon unclean things were offered to Jupiter Olympus, to whom the temple itself was dedicated. So when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of the north, the literal king of the north of the earlier part of the prophecy of Daniel, the 11th chapter, and I'll come back to that and give you some information on that out of the historical sources in just a few moments, set up a pagan idolatrous statue inside the Holy of Holies and rededicated the temple not to the divine Elohim, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to a pagan, non-existent god, the figment of the imagination of darkened, demented-minded pagans who imagined there was some god called Jupiter Olympus. Going on with this article from Kiddo, Josephus distinctly refers to this as the accomplishment of Daniel's prophecy, as does the author of the first book of Maccabees. And if you've heard of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they are some of the books of the Apocrypha, which are found in the Catholic Bible, that are absolutely non-inspired and are largely spurious, but they are interesting from a purely historical point of view. Certainly the Maccabean Revolt, which took place as a result of some of the events that were triggered by Antiochus Epiphanes himself, and forms a part of the history between the two testaments of the Bible, so therefore it's quite interesting to read about the Maccabees and the revolt during their day. Josephus then distinctly refers to this as the accomplishment of Daniel's prophecy, as does the author of the first book of Maccabees, in declaring that, quote, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar. That's found in 1 Maccabees 1, 54, and in 6, 7, and in 2 Maccabees 6, 2 through 5. It's found in Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, 7, and verses 5 and 4, and 7 and 6. And the same phase or phrase is quoted, says Kitto, often by Jesus and gives the form of the Greek, and is applied by him to what was to take place at the advance of the Romans against Jerusalem. They who saw the abomination of desolation standing in a holy place were enjoined to flee to the mountains. And this may, says Kiddo, with probability, be referred to the advance of the Roman army against the city, with their image-crowned standards to which idolatrous honors were paid, and which the Jews regarded as idols." His book, by the way, includes sketches of those standards, and those standards look to be identical with the standards carried by the bands and the marchers that were marching in parade before Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and the early 1940s. The standards that were carried by Nazi armies, the banners, the standards that actually designated certain divisions or certain ranks of the German army, are identical to the standards that are depicted in Kiddo's Encyclopedia of Biblical Literature and the standards that were carried by the ancient Romans. The unexpected retreat and discomfiture of the Roman forces afforded such as were mindful of the Savior's prophecy an opportunity of obeying the injunction which it contained. And, of course, there is a tradition, Josephus mentions it, that the high priest heard an audible voice in the temple that said it was time for them to flee and to get out when he knew the Romans were approaching. And those who heeded it escaped and fled to Pella, and those who did not, in their hundreds of thousands, were put to death in the most brutal fashion you can imagine, including being impaled, having their bodies smeared with bitumen, and set afire.
Josephus actually says that the nighttime streets of Jerusalem were lit by the burning bodies of murdered people whom the Romans had put to the torch. Kiddo goes on to say that the Jews themselves regarded the Roman standards as abominations is shown by the fact that in deference to their known aversion, the Roman soldiers quartered in Jerusalem forbode to introduce their standard into the city. And on one occasion, when Pilate gave orders that they should be carried in by night, so much stir was made of the matter by the principal inhabitants that for the sake of peace the governor was eventually induced to give up the point. So says Josephus in his chapter 13, verses 3 and section 1. Those, however, who suppose that the holy place of the text must be the temple itself may find the accomplishment of the prediction in the fact that when the city had been taken by the Romans and the holy house destroyed or the temple destroyed, the soldiers brought their standards in due form to the temple, set them up over the eastern gate, and there offered sacrifice to them. That historically, then, is the abomination of desolation. It is something which is contemptible, which is a despicable, ugly, blasphemous, and horrible thing, which is abominable in God's sight, which is set up in the temple. Now, another important point to remember. When Jesus Christ gave that Olivet prophecy, when he told his disciples, when you shall see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. All his disciples had to do was to turn their heads a little bit, to look over across their shoulders. They were seated on the Mount of Olives, and it was just across the brook Kidron, and they could see at that time the most famous skyline in the world. And there was the temple, the temple in which Jesus had taught as a boy of twelve, the temple where he noticed the widow throwing her mite into the treasury, the temple where he stooped and wrote on the floor, when the Pharisees had brought him the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and he wrote their names, and they haughtily began to stride out. The temple where Jesus taught massive numbers of people on many, many different occasions. The temple where on two different occasions he threw out the money changers with their blatting sheep and their doves and all their animals and birds for sale, and overturned their tables, scattering money on the floor. The temple still stood. There was no one there who doubted what he meant when he said, When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. He meant the temple. He meant the holy of holies inside the temple. Now that had come to pass, as I just showed you, during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it came to pass yet again at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 and 71 A.D. under the armies of Titus. Let me give you now from the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 11th edition, from clear back in 1910, the article on the Seleucid dynasty. This is the king of the north of the time of Daniel's writing. Actually, a good bit after that time, because it was after the death of Alexander the Great. But the time of Daniel's prophecy, the original, literal fulfillment of it, the king of the north, during the days when a Seleucid dynasty of Syrian kings waged war against a lesser line of pharaohs called the Ptolemies. And the Ptolemies were a line of pharaohs. The word Ptolemy was an Egyptian word that made a ruler, a leader, or a king, and did not was not a person's private name. Here is what the Encyclopedia Britannica 11th edition says. The Seleucid kingdom, as Antiochus left it to his son, Seleucus IV, Philopater reigned 187 to 176 B.C., consisted of Syria, which included Cilicia and Palestine, Mesopotamia, Babylonia, and nearer Iran, Media, and Persis. Seleucus IV was compelled by financial necessities created in part by the heavy war indemnity exacted by Rome to pursue an unambitious policy and was assassinated by his minister Heliodorus. Well, Heliodorus was a tax collector, and Heliodorus is mentioned not by name, but by his office in Daniel, the 11th chapter. So is Antiochus Epiphanes mentioned. It says in verse 20 of Daniel 11, Then shall stand up in his estate, and that is referring to Philopater, 
Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. His name was Heliodorus. But within a few days shall he be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in during a time of peace, peaceably, as it says in Daniel 11:21, and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, by flattering the populaces and flattering other people who can propel him into office. Back in the article in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, The true heir, Demetrius, son of Seleucus, being now retained in Rome as a hostage, the kingdom was seized by the younger brother of Seleucus, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And the word epiphany, as you understand, a coming out, a presence, or a revealing, is also taken to mean the manifest God, or at the epiphany of Jesus Christ, the baptism of Christ, and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is celebrated as the epiphany, it means the revealing of Christ as the Son of God. So this man actually took a title that belongs to God. He called himself Antiochus, after which the city of Antioch was named, Epiphanes. And that meant the manifest God. But it was parodied by writers of history and others who knew him as Antiochus Epimenes, because in their language that meant Antiochus the mad, the one who was insane. And apparently he was demonic and insane. He reigned from 176 to 164 B.C. In 170, Egypt, governed by regents for the boy Ptolemy Philometer, attempted to reconquer Palestine. Antiochus not only defeated this attempt, but invaded and occupied Egypt. He failed to take Alexandria, where the people set up the younger brother of Philometer, Ptolemy Eurgetes, as king, but he left Philometer as his ally installed at Memphis. When the two brothers combined, Antiochus again invaded Egypt in 168 B.C., but was compelled to retire by the Roman envoy Papilius Laenus, who was consul from Rome in 172 B.C., after the historic scene in which the Roman drew a circle in the sand about the king and demanded his answer before he was allowed to step out of it. Antiochus exercised his contemporaries by the riddles of his half-brilliant, half-crazy personality. If you look in, once again, Daniel 11 and verses 20 and 21, you will see a shadowy type of Adolf Hitler's rise to power. Heliodorus was a tax raiser, a tax collector. Well, the Kaiser came from a family in Germany that were called the Hohenzollerns. A Hohenzollern, the word Zoll, you will see all over Europe, especially in Germany and the German-speaking portion of Switzerland, which means customs, or taxes. And the Hohenzollerns were tax collectors. The Kaiser, who abdicated, and eventually the weak Weimar Republic, which was overthrown by Hitler, who came in promising the German people that they were the super race, and beginning to rail against the Jews, came in in a time of peace and gained the kingdom by flatteries. And it said, in the estate of Heliodorus, who was a tax collector... And here comes Adolf Hitler to supersede the government that fell after World War I. The Hohenzollerns, the Kaiser, shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably or at a time of peace and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. It's important to notice that from the time of the introduction of the literal person meant by that prophecy, not the shadowy type, which is Adolf Hitler, but the literal person meant by that prophecy, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epimenes, the mad, that the personality never changes. Many, many times, all the way through the very detailed and very technically intricate prophecy of Daniel, the 11th chapter, there are many, many, many different actors and characters and personalities and kings and queens and princes that are revealed to us and Rollinson's histories and others, Dorothy Ruth Miller's Ancient History and Bible Light, give us an understanding of that prophecy, literally verse by verse. But once Antiochus Epiphanes is introduced, that individual never again changes. And it says in verse 31, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did, and it's also what the armies of Titus did. 
and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Now look at the time in which we live and look at the typical fulfillment of this prophecy. The meaning of it, as it is applied now, not to the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, nor to the days of Titus and the armies of Rome that destroyed Jerusalem, but to the time in which we live right now, when Jesus said, When you shall see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And here is where Daniel the prophet speaks of that abomination of desolation. And here's what he says. They shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. There is a prophecy in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that you need to come to understand about the man of sin that is said to set up his own throne in the temple of God, claiming that he is God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the people in Thessalonica that they should not be soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as if it had been written from the hand of the Apostle Paul that the day of Christ was at hand back then. He said, and I'm reading now in verse 3 of Second Thessalonians 2, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of the coming of Christ, as he says in verse 1, that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, a massive departure from the truth of God, a falling away on the part of many who understood the truth of God. People who have never come to understand the truth can't fall away. You can only fall away once you have come to understand the truth of God, once you have repented, been converted, been baptized, and received God's Holy Spirit. This says, No man should deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, now we have it. Anciently, when Antiochus Epiphanes first desecrated the temple and set up a statue of Jupiter Olympus and sacrificed swine's blood and set up the abomination of desolation as Daniel prophesied that he would, he himself was not viewed as being a god, even though he took a blasphemous title, as do the leaders of a great universal church today. But he set up a statue inside the Holy of Holies. But here in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, we see that the final fulfillment of Christ's prophecy of the abomination of desolation is going to be that a human being who takes unto himself the very power of God and through various satanic induced miracles, will try to prove to people that he is God, will actually take the names and the titles of God, and that he, that human being, will become ensconced inside the temple and will fulfill this prophecy of the abomination and of the abomination of desolation. It says in verse 4, "...who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, Paul reminded them. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let, and that is the old King James English phrase that should read, restrains, will continue to restrain until he be taken out of the way. Some think that refers to the removal of Paul by martyrdom. Others believe that the Greek word ginomai means until it be come to be, or until it arise in the midst, or until it become evident for what it is, talking about the insidious mystery religion, the mystery of iniquity that was already at work among the parishioners and lay members of the true church of God during that day. And verse 8 says, Then shall that wicked... And other versions say that wicked one, that's why it's capitalized with a capital W, talking about this great false prophet, this man of sin, this individual who himself will be the abomination of desolation. 
Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs, and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie. Here, then, is the great false prophet of biblical prophecy. Who is going to be where? In the holy place. And where is that? In a temple. And where is that? In Jerusalem. Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And in Luke's version, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then know that the destruction thereof is nigh. Now, back to Daniel, the 11th and 12th chapters. We need to understand, verse by verse, what Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45, is telling us. And we need to understand who the likely actors are going to be, which nations are involved, what will trigger these events, what should we look for. Back to Daniel 11 and verse 40, as we began at the very beginning of this tape. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. First, we know the prophecy is dated. It's talking about the time of the end. Daniel 12 and verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, and goes on to speak about a time of trouble, which is obviously the great tribulation, and finally goes on to say that at that time the resurrection is going to occur, and the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to follow on at that exact moment. So at the time of the end is the time just before the great tribulation. Now, who is the king of the south? Anciently, as I've explained, he was one of the Ptolemies. You see, in the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel, it describes how at the death of Alexander the Great, his empire was to be carved up into four separate nations, and that did happen even before his body was interred. When it speaks of Alexander the Great, in verse 5 of the 8th chapter of Daniel, Daniel writes, And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth. And that rough goat, or that he-goat, is Alexander the Great, coming into Palestine from the west, which was Greece and Macedonia, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And that is Alexander. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river. That is, Greco-Macedonia is now, under Alexander, attacking the Medo-Persian Empire, which is depicted as the ram that had two horns. And he ran into him in the fury of his power, and I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. That's Alexander defeating the Medo-Persian Empire. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Those were the four generals of Alexander the Great, from Rome in the west, to Syria in the north, to Egypt in the south, and to Persia in the east. And these were the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, and that is out of the one to the west, which was the Roman Empire, and eventually the papacy, which is the little horn, waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, verse 10 of chapter 8 of the book of Daniel, and it cast some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. There again, the prophecy goes all the time from the division of Alexander's kingdom to the emergence of the Roman Empire, to the creation of the papacy, to the final prophecy of the little horn, and the little horn of Daniel is the papacy, coming to the place of the sanctuary, taking away the daily sacrifice, and ensconcing himself in the temple. It says, And host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of the transgression, 
and it cast down the, the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which had spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? In other words, the abomination of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, Unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And you can see in the commentaries, especially the critical and experimental, exactly what that meant. So the prophecy, even of Daniel the eighth chapter, goes all the way to the end time and talks again about the setting up of the abomination of desolation. In Daniel 11, verse 40 again, it says, Then shall the king of the south push at him. Who is the king of the south? We do not know at this moment. He may be, just like he anciently was, a king of Egypt. He may well be some other Arab leader. But we need to understand that this shows that there is going to be a violent reaction by a northern power and the northern power that did inherit that portion of Alexander's kingdom, which eventually became the Roman Empire, is the beast power of biblical prophecy. And that he is going to come into that area like a whirlwind, as it says in verse 40, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. And verse 41 says, He shall also enter into the glorious land, and that's talking about Palestine, modern Israel, with the capital of Jerusalem. And many countries shall be overthrown. Now, when you list the countries in the area, that can include Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, the oil-rich nations of the Persian Gulf. It could also include other nations in North Africa. It can certainly and does include Egypt because the prophecy says so. It says, He shall enter into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, and Esau is Edom, and we believe that means Turkey, and Moab, and that well may mean the Arabs just to the east of that area, which are some of the Iraqis, and the chief of the children of Ammon, and Ammon is the capital of Jordan, these shall escape out of his hand. So while this northern power comes into Palestine... He does not occupy Turkey, or Iraq, or very likely Jordan. Yet all the other nations in that area are involved. It says, He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Now think, what power is there in any part of the earth who would, if they came in to occupy Palestine, also occupy Egypt. You could never have understood that before the Camp David Accords, because all the way down through history, especially since the dawn of Islam, the nation of Egypt has been a bitter enemy of Israel. And as a result of the bold move of Anwar Sadat and the eventual signing of a formal peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, those nations are cooperating to a certain degree today. So here is an occupying power, a northern power called the King of the North, that is identified really as the beast power of biblical prophecy. Ten nations in Central Europe, allied together, probably called the United States of Europe, and they are going to move into the Middle East, into Palestine, under the aegis of a great religious leader who is very likely going to say, it is time for the mother church to return to her roots and to the city of her origins to go back to Jerusalem. I think all of us know that if any Israeli government were to touch or to allow anyone else to touch the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it would mean an immediate uniting together of the Arab nations that really are mostly divided today. And that very division and the inability of some of these Arab states to get along together is one of the reasons that Israel has avoided a major war and being annihilated by some of those Arab nations who do possess tremendous weapons and even sophisticated weapons, such as those produced in the United States like the F-16 that are sold to Saudi Arabia. The point of the prophecy, then, is that some action by a king of the South is going to precipitate an immediate 
blitzkrieg-like whirlwind attack, as it says with chariots, you can read tanks and armored vehicles, and horsemen, you can read aircraft and helicopters, and with many ships, and of course ships, you can just read ships. And it says, he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. It was Hitler that invented the modern kind of warfare that he named Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, a very lightning-like slashing attack from the land and the air at the same time, and in some cases by sea, if uh, a kind of a invasion aboard ship is indicated, which the United States pursued during World War II in island hopping in the Pacific. But Hitler was the one who invented Blitzkrieg. And it's interesting that this prophecy says that the king of the north is going to come against the king of the south like a whirlwind. Let's try to understand who the players are and what would precipitate this. Watch to see, then, who emerges as the most powerful Arab leader in the future. Now, back to the prophecy of the king of the north and the king of the south. It says that when this provocation occurs, this pushing at the king of the north, he will enter into these countries like a whirlwind and enter into the glorious land, and many of them shall escape out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon, but he shall also stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Here, then, is the prophecy of Jesus Christ, when you shall see armies surrounding Jerusalem, then know that the destruction thereof is nigh. And he also says, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now we have to go to the book of Revelation to understand a bit more about this prophecy. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, we see the revealing of a great beast power. Daniel speaks of a great beast, which is like no other beast in the 7th chapter of the book of Daniel, the 4th beast of Daniel 7, which is the very same as this first beast of Revelation, the 13th chapter. And it is the Roman Empire, which was to have many resurrections all the way down through history, including a final end-time resurrection. Not now with the ancient Roman legions with their chariots and their spears, but a modern end-time space-age nation, a great power, which is called the beast. It is such a great economic and military power that it is literally worshipped by its adherents. John writes, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of Revelation having seven heads and ten horns. And we don't need to wonder what that is. We will see very shortly, because the Bible interprets the Bible, and the Bible itself will tell us what that means. And upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy, names and titles of God. And it says, verse 2, The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Well, when you read Daniel's seventh chapter, you find that the leopard was a type of Alexander the Great's empire. You find that the bear was a type of the Persian empire. And to this day, the Russians are likened as a bear. And you find that the lion was a type of the Babylonian empire. So here is a great empire that embodies all the strongest parts of the other three great world ruling empires before it. And that is the Roman Empire of history. And it says, The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And that is the collapse of the Roman Empire in 476 A.D., and the healing of the Roman Empire by Belisarius in 554 A.D. And it says, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. This is worship of the state. Some of the German geopoliticians and even British geopoliticians, such as Haushofer and Mackinder, wrote of state worship, and we have seen how that came to pass during the days of Adolf Hitler. Never in our modern time had we seen a nation have its entire national will molded and bent to the whims of one mad dictator. There were people who would stand in the streets when Hitler's motorcade would go by with all the pomp and the ceremony of jack-booted, stomping, goose-stepping, coal-scuttle, helmeted German soldiers and all the banners snapping in the breeze and the martial music 
and when they would see Adolf Hitler, they would literally faint. Many a woman would look at him and just swoon, overcome, as they were shouting out, Sieg Heil and Heil Hitler, by their hundreds of thousands and their millions in German cities during World War II, in the early part of the war. And it says here that they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So they are worshiping the military prowess, the military power of this great beast. Now notice it also says, There was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, that's exactly three and one-half years, 1260 days of biblical prophecy, all the same period of time, to blaspheme his name, to open his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Here then is the great tribulation. It is the beast power and the false prophet who is his spokesman, who is able to persecute God's people. It goes on to say in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation, speaking of this very same beast, and in only a very few verses you can get the meaning of it, that this great beast was ridden over by a great fallen woman called the great whore. And that is the very same thing as the image of the beast, and the very same thing as the little horn of the book of Daniel. In chapter 17, he says, There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. That's a great false church that influences many, many nations. Many waters is symbolic of the millions of peoples in many different nations, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And that's talking about a mingling of church and state, of a church that actually becomes a state that has ambassadors and that has concourse with governments and meddles in the governments of this earth, rather than, as Jesus Christ said, come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins, that you be not partakers of her plagues, and how the Bible says that we are to come out of the world. Instead, the great false church, the great universal false church, has concourse with the kings of the world, and it's called in the Bible fornication. And it says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, in passing, you need to notice that the word wine is the very same word always translated wine in the New Testament from the word oinos in the Greek. It is not grape juice. And it says they have been made drunk with the oinos of her fornication. You can recognize the word wine, wine, in oinos. The Greek word oinos is wine. We say in English, wine. In French, it is vin, V-I-N. And in Spanish, it is vino, V-I-N-O. It says they have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That is referring to false doctrine. It is referring to spiritual drunkenness. It is talking about complete disorientation and confusion and drunkenness as a result of the Babylonish mystery religions that turns God into a mystery and his whole plan into a complete unsolvable mystery that no one can understand. So he carried me away, writes John, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Here we are again with the first beast of Revelation, the thirteenth chapter, which is the same as the fourth beast of Daniel's seventh chapter, which is the Roman Empire in all of its many resurrections and collapses and resurrections and collapses, and the final end-time resurrection of a ten-nation combine in the very same region of the earth where it always held sway, and in most cases it was a Germanic kingdom ruled over by Germanic kings in cooperation with the popes in Rome. And it says the woman that he saw... It's sitting upon this scarlet-colored beast, actually guiding, ruling, leading the beast, just like a rider on a horse would have a bit 
and a bridle and spurs and would guide the beast. So this woman is guiding the beast. And it says the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. And that's significant when you think of some of the robes that are worn by people parading as religious leaders today. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Here is a great woman who is called a whore, a fallen woman, whose very label is Mystery, Babylon the Great, which is the Babylonish mystery religion begun by Semiramis, the mother-wife of Nimrod, who was the first great city-state organizer and a great hunter who began to draw people together into cities, and he and his mother-wife ruled over them, she with her mystery religions and all kinds of spooky ideas, and he with his military prowess. So it says that the very name on this system is Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So she is a mother church who has daughters who came out of her in protest. And he goes on to say, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration, not respect, but awe or astonishment. And you ought to read the articles in connection with Revelation, the 17th chapter, in Halley's Bible Handbook, which label absolutely and unequivocally exactly what is this Babylonish mystery system, who is this mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, who is she, and what is her history, because it's all there, especially in his lengthy article on church history in the latter part of that very interesting little Bible handbook. So the beast that is ridden over by a woman, is a military and an economic union of ten nations, but it is ridden by, it is controlled by, it does the will of a great false religious organization which sits astride the beast. Now notice in verse 12 through 14 of the book of Revelation how much you can learn by just three Bible verses. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. So we know that the horn is a symbol of a government, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now we know that a day can symbolize a year, Numbers 14.34. We know that one hour could mean only a very short time, even less than a year, but there is no real indication anywhere in the Bible as to exactly what is meant by one hour. We only know it means a very short time. This is something that is very brief. It comes on the scene. It doesn't last very long. And, of course, that's the way of things today in the world in any event. These are ten nations which come together and receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So the whole system of all ten is called the beast. And there is a super dictator. So there are really eleven men in all, aren't there? There is the beast who is the super dictator, who is chosen to be the leader over all ten of them, then there are the ten dictators or kings over each one of the ten separate nations. These have one mind, verse 13. That means one policy. They agree on one strategy, one policy. And it says they shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And the power and the strength of a king is the power of his raw minerals, his resources, his population, his army, and, of course, the power of his economy. But mostly it is talking about their military power. So this is a coalescing of the military and economic power of ten very powerful nations to result in the greatest military power the world has ever seen. Now, astonishingly, notice verse 14 these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Look then at the date on that prophecy. We don't know the year. I can't label it. But it does say that the beast is going to coalesce together with ten nations having one policy, and all of their power and strength given unto this beast power, at the time just before the coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. One hour. 
and they're going to actually fight Christ at his return, and you can read of that in the second half of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. That's only a couple of pages ahead of us. Let's turn to that right quickly and read that portion. John, now envisioning and seeing in vision the second coming of Jesus Christ, said in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written, and no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that's because he by divine fiat can issue a divine command, and it will be so, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And, John writes, I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth. Here are the ten kings of Revelation 17, 12 through 14. And their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And as we just read in Revelation 17, the beast and those ten nations will fight the returning, conquering Christ. And it says, The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The first act that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is going to accomplish upon his second coming is to literally seize the beast and the false prophet, and to take them, kicking and screaming, to the edge of a steep, precipitous overhang near the city of Jerusalem, that is, the Valley of Hinnom, where once again, during the millennium, the ever-burning fires are going to be ignited. And just as they were in the ancient past, when Jesus referred to Gehenna fire, he was referring, in a sense, to the city dump. And people knew that they were perpetual fires. It was very unsanitary, and that is largely outlawed in the United States today, but in many smaller towns that was still in vogue even in the 1950s and the 1960s. And the fires smoldered and smoldered, and they just never went out because continually people were shoving trash. And in some cases back then during those days, they even took the bodies of criminals who were killed by stoning or other people and put them on that garbage trash heap and allowed the bodies to be consumed by fire instead of giving them a proper burial. When Jesus said Gehenna, he is referring to the family called Hinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom, and the sons of Hinnom, and that is revealed in the Bible, who bought that land, and it became a perpetual fire, a kind of a city dump, and once again, at the coming of Jesus Christ, it is going to be ignited and it is going to burn, and Jesus is going to throw both the beast and the false prophet right over into that city dump where the fires are going to be burning. And there is something else on that that is revealed in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, as well as Ezekiel 28, where it talks about the beast power and the individual who is going to be there and who will not be completely consumed, but people will gaze upon him and say, Is this the man that did make the kingdoms and the nations to tremble? Now back to the prophecy in Daniel, the 11th chapter, verses 40 to 45, and let's come to understand all of the players and the actors on the scene. First of all, the king of the south is not yet identified. He may be an Egyptian, because he was anciently when this prophecy was written, or he may be some other powerful Arab leader. But the prophecy of Daniel 11 says that the king of the south at the time of the end is going to push at this king of the north. 
and the king of the north is the beast power, a ten-nation combine who will come into Palestine and occupy it. He will come in under the idea that he is saving the remaining Jews alive, and he will only come in as a result of something that is called pushing at the king of the north. Now, here's what it may well mean. It may mean that there will be some movement on the part of the Jews to lay hands on those Arab mosques. We all know that there is a very great deal of information around about the intent of some Jewish organizations to build a temple. I have books in my possession that actually show some of the vestments, the Urim and the Thummim, the priestly garments, the brazen pots and vessels that are being put together by one organization, and there are people who really look upon the building of the Jewish temple as necessary from the Jewish point of view, because they look at the Bible that talks about how the Messiah shall suddenly come to his temple, and from their point of view, rejecting Jesus Christ and looking at the Old Testament prophecies, they see, for example, the prophecies that talk about the necessity of building a temple before the Messiah is going to come. And so they, with a very great religious fervor, such as Gershon Salomon, who was interviewed by my son, and we have shown him on our television program many times, who was the head of the Temple Mount Faithful, who said that they will very respectfully, brick by brick, dismantle the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Well, you and I know that if any Jew were to even walk up to one of those mosques and so much as touch it, that it would spark an immediate riot, if not a war. So what provocation would come about which would result in the Jews becoming so angry they would just destroy those mosques? And if they did, then if the United States, which is viewed as a mentor and a protector of Israel, and if Germany and a united Europe, which is also viewed as very friendly toward Israel, if they were to guarantee the territorial integrity of Israel, and if the Pope himself were to say, I think I must go there. I think now I need to go to Jerusalem to stop this war which has gotten started, which would be the beginning of World War III. Now, when you read right on through these prophecies and put them all together, you would also see the setting up of the abomination of desolation. You would see the fulfillment of the prophecy in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, of a great false religious leader who is the head of a great false church that is called Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And you would see many other great state religions returning back to Mother Rome at that time. And you would see a tremendous coalition of religion and state. And you would see a United States of Europe advancing into the Middle East to occupy Palestine and to ensconce the leader of the great universal church in a temple. Now, the events to trigger all this are many. Remember that, first of all, some event or another has got to trigger the king of the south to even emerge as a king of the south to be a leader among many of these otherwise bickering and disagreeing Arab states, and we don't know what that is yet. We don't know who he is as yet. Then we don't know what would cause this king of the south to push at the king of the north. That is the beast power of Central Europe. But it's got to do with Palestine. We know that because Jesus said when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, then you know the destruction thereof is nigh. We know also that a man of sin, the great false prophet, will have to have his safety guaranteed by security forces, meaning the armies that are to surround Jerusalem, so we know that when the glorious land is to be occupied, as it says it will in Daniel 11:40 to 45 that the prophecies of Christ, of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and Jerusalem surrounded with armies, will come to pass. So whether it is religious, political, or military, or all three, something is going to cause a king of the south to push at a king of the north. A massive military invasion is going to occur. The beast power will occupy Palestine. The false prophet will become ensconced in the temple of God, showing that he is God. And the great tribulation will have begun. And at that time, there will be no further organized preaching of the gospel allowed. The great tribulation is going to last, together with the heavenly signs and the day of the Lord, for three and one-half years. 
And the events that are going to trigger the Great Tribulation are the events described right here in Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45. The events that are going to take place in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in the Middle East. You need to get every single one of our booklets, which will shed a great deal of additional light on this quite involved subject, which has many facets to it. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, Work, for the night is coming when no man can work. And I know that some of these events in the Middle East and elsewhere are going to come together very rapidly. I do not know how much time we have for the further organized preaching of the gospel. I don't know how much longer we have to fulfill and to do the work of the watchman of the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and a warning to the world and to let people know what these events are, what to watch for, what to look for, and to know as Jesus Christ that these events are at the very door. He said, when you see these things begin to come to pass, then lift up your heads, for you know your redemption draweth nigh. And we are very close now to the events which are going to trigger the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation is a time of terrible trouble for the United States of America and the British Commonwealth of Nations, as well as the whole world. The next time we hear of a major war breaking out in the Middle East, look out, because perhaps Europe will decide to intervene. And if Europe intervenes, in a war getting underway in the Middle East, if massive amount of loss of life takes place in Israel, if the Israelis destroy those mosques, if a great religious leader from Rome goes to Jerusalem and ensconces himself in a temple which is being built, then look out, because the great tribulation prophesied by Jesus Christ of Nazareth has begun. 